Three weeks from today, the Major League Baseball season begins, and I've already begun to visit the MLB St. Louis Cardinals website at least once a day, and I probably will continue that ritual. I have a problem. (laughs) But I remember last year, MLB has other products which they sell besides the games themselves. And I remember one slogan, and it kept coming back to me. Everybody loves the show. It was an advertisement for a PlayStation 4 2017 MLB game to be played. And that's quite true, isn't it? There's something in us that loves to be entertained. We love a show. And no aspect of our lives is without that kind of influence of our love for a show. And that's not new to our generation. It was not even new to our father's generation, nor our grandfather's. And going all the way back to biblical times, that was true. This passage of Scripture, which we read today, would give indication of that, that the brothers of Jesus loved a show. But before that, I'd like to tell a story that reflects the love of show business in the church. There was a certain Sunday in one of the parishes here in El Paso when the bishop made a visit. And it was a very big day. Anytime the bishop comes for a visit, it is a big day in any local parish in the Roman Catholic community here. And when the time came for him to pray, there was an offering which was to follow... And he stood and he said this to the Lord. I'm the bishop of this diocese and I only make $500 a week and that's not enough. (laughs) Well, the offering was received. But evidently it was not enough. Because there was the extemporaneous decision to do it one more time. This time, the parish priest rose. He says, I'm the priest of this parish and I only make $300 a week and that's not enough. And then, after the offering was completed, accompanied by organ music, the organist just couldn't contain herself. She began to play and sing, there's no business like show, business like no, business I know. And she said, I make $1,000 a week and that's enough. That's what led her to that place. Well, these brothers of Jesus, whom we read about, were people who were really oriented toward a show. And unfortunately, that mentality still prevails today in the life of some churches around the world. When we think about Jesus... We think of him as a man who was on a mission, undoubtedly. And this text teaches us what Jesus' motives were in his mission, as well as the method which he employed for his mission. Now, I don't need to tell you that the church is described in the New Testament as the body of Christ. Jesus when he was in his human body, is described here in this gospel. 
But actually, Jesus uses us to represent Himself to the world today. And what was true of Jesus in His incarnation ought to be true of us as a church body of Christ. And it should be true of the wider body of Christ. We should be like Jesus. So, Jesus' motives, which we're going to examine today, ought to be our motives individually, because He dwells in us individually, but also collectively, because we are His body. Also, His methods, the same methods which Jesus employed in conducting His mission when He was incarnated, is the mission we are to employ in carrying out the work that He has called us to do. So let's begin by considering Jesus' motives for His mission. They're spelled out in the first seven verses and then a little bit later in the text. So one thing we see is that His motive was not one of popularity. Look at verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for He was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, we have learned from our study of the book of John that this description, which is a simple-sounding description, but it really only pinpoints one segment of the descendants of Abraham who lived in Israel at the time of Jesus. The Jews were people who comprised an elitist group among those who were descendants of Abraham. And they were... Men who were very uneasy about Jesus. Jesus threatened them. And they were an odd mixture. We had the Pharisees. They were men who were ultra-conservative men. They knew the Bible, as we would call it, backwards and forwards. They could quote it. They were laymen. They took no money for what they did. And they were proud of that. And then there were the Sadducees who were of the high priestly family primarily. They were of the priestly line, but they really were people who made their living off of religion. But they came together, and they were not interested in the things of the Word of God. They were not supernaturalists. They were naturalists, actually. But they were the ones who were seeking to kill Jesus. Verse 2 says, Now, The feast of the Jews, this would be all of the descendants of Abraham, the feast of booths was at hand. Now what this tells us is that when John begins verse 1, he says, after these things, and there is a reference to what we have just studied for several weeks in the 6th chapter. And that began with the feeding of the 5,000, you'll recall that. Then there was this interaction between Jesus and the people They wanted to make him king. He refused the opportunity. And then over a period of time, those people who thought of themselves as disciples quit following Jesus. In fact, they defected. There was a defection of the crowd. In 630, the scripture tells us that. And then there was defection of those who called themselves or thought of themselves as disciples in the 6th chapter and the 64th verse. And now as we see in this text, there's actually a defection of the brothers of Jesus. But there may not have been any defection at all on their part because we're going to see in a few moments how they were not believing in Jesus. They really didn't know Him. They were His brothers in the flesh, but they didn't know Jesus. And the Feast of Booths was one of three obligatory feasts that all male Jews 
were required to attend. Of course, the Passover, which celebrated the Exodus experience, the deliverance of Israel after over 400 years of enslavement in Egypt at the hands of Pharaoh, the man Moses was used for that deliverance. Then there was the Feast of Ingathering, or Weeks. It's Pentecost in the New Testament. And what we see here is this was a time where they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest time. And then the Feast of Booths. Josephus, who was a contemporary of this era, he writes about the popularity of the Feast of Booths. It was probably the least spiritual, and the Feast of Booths commemorated, you perhaps realize, the time in the 40-year period of wilderness wandering where the people slept in temporary quarters. And what people would do, if they could find enough place around where they lived, they would make a lean-to of sorts out of boughs of trees, and they would thatch it, and then they would sleep in there for the eight-day period of the celebration. It was a joyous time. And people, if they were going to miss one, if they had their choice, so Josephus said, the one that they would not miss would be the Feast of Booths. And so this was a time when there were lots of people. We know at Passover, one historian said that there would be upwards of half a million people who would come to Jerusalem in addition to all the people who live there normally. And so you can imagine if there were even more at the Feast of Booths, there's a lot of folks there. And so Jesus' brothers in the flesh, and if you think Jesus didn't have any brothers, just let me point you to Matthew 13, 55. He had four brothers who were named, and then it, Matthew says he had some sisters. That means he had at least two sisters. They were sisters of his by his mother in her relationship to his foster father, Joseph. So, here his brothers come, and they say to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. What were they wanting him to do? This is the advice which they were giving to their big brother. They were saying, Big brother... You need a bigger stage. You've got a message that's stirring the people. You have been used, we've seen evidence of it, to heal people of sickness and to cast out demons. We know that you fed this massive throng of people. Big brother, you need a bigger stage. Galilee is not the place. Go to Jerusalem when all those people are there. They will be ready to receive this message. And so they were giving him that advice. Now let me pause just a moment and make mention of Galilee because Galilee is where Jesus was raised and where he headquartered in his ministry. And Galilee was a place where when Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, was enlisted by Solomon when Solomon took the throne and Solomon began to build his temple. He asked for Hiram's help and Hiram obliged. He did give him the help. And then, as a token of appreciation, what Solomon did, he chose 20 cities in Galilee and gave them 
to this Tyrian leader, king, Hiram. He gave them to him. And then when Hiram came from Tyre southeastward, and he looked at those five, uh, 20 cities, excuse me, this is what he said. He called it Kabul. And Kabul means good for nothing. And that stuck with Galilee. Galilee was sort of the hillbilly section, the backwoods of Israel. Judea, where Jerusalem was, was the place that people who were of means would find their way. People who wanted to leave their mark economically, religiously, politically. They would try to have some acquaintance, if not a residence there. It was a place that was a big shots arena. And the brothers are saying, you need a bigger stage, Jesus. Also, they were saying, your disciples, whom you introduced to yourself back when, when you first started your ministry, and remember that Jesus' public ministry began in Judea, and he did collect some disciples. And they said, you need to go back there, Jesus, and give them a refresher course. Perhaps they're Faith has flagged a little bit. We've already lost a ton of people recently. Remember that, Jesus. Six months ago, we lost a bunch of people that could have been disciples. And you're losing more, perhaps, back in Judea. It would be a perfect time for you to go and do that because of all the people who will be in attendance there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booze. And also, your plan's just unworkable, Jesus. Nobody who wants to push an agenda does it privately. So you need to do it publicly. They were trying to get him to do it publicly and make a big splash. And then this would have appealed to me if I had been Jesus. But remember, Jesus is, of course, a human being, but he's God. And he was one who was not going to give in to any temptation which would come his way. But they probably were appealing to him in a way by saying, your gifts are too great to be wasted here where there aren't so many people. And those people are not very important people. Well, Jesus didn't accept that at all. He recognized that these people were interested in his making a name for himself. Even Jesus was not committed to making a name for himself. He was not interested in building popularity. Turn back to chapter 5, verse 41. Let's remember something which we looked at some weeks ago that Jesus said. Verse 41 of chapter 5, he says, I do not receive glory from men. Jesus was not interested in getting glory from others. Rather, he was interested in giving glory to God. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, speaking of himself now being him, he, that is Jesus, is true. And there is no righteousness, unrighteousness rather, in Jesus. So what is Jesus describing himself as? He's not speaking... On his own. Rather, he is in such a relationship with God the Father, he hears what the Father says, and then he simply conveys that message to those in his hearing. 
So Jesus was not after popularity whatsoever. Look at verse 13. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. These folks were afraid of the religious establishment. And they were afraid about talking about Jesus, even out of curiosity, not to mention possibly following Jesus. So they were fearful. Jesus was not afraid of anybody. Some might conclude from verse 1 that the reason that he was not going to Judea was because he was afraid of the Jews. He was not going because he knew his time had not come. He knew what the Bible spoke of in what we call the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament that the Messiah would have to die not at the Feast of Booths, but at the Feast of Passover. And he didn't want to go and jump the gun because he was on track with the prophecy of God regarding the Messiah. Jesus knew that. And so Jesus was certainly not into popularity. He had a way of ruffling people's feathers, especially this group known as the Jews. Christ's motive for his mission was not popularity. It was to do the Father's will. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. So as a reminder, go back to 638 for just a moment. Notice what Jesus says in 638. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was Jesus' mission, wasn't it? And he was not after popularity, but he was after the will of the Father. Now let's look back at chapter 7, verse 10 for a moment. Verse 10 says, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. Now it seems like Jesus is not telling the truth here. He's already said earlier in his conversation with his brothers, you go up, I'm not going up. And then all of a sudden, we don't know how soon, but it was pretty quickly after they had left, what do we hear him saying here in verse 10? Or what does the text say about him? He didn't go up publicly with them, but he did go up secretly. He went up with them. That creates a problem. There have been several different suggestions made as to why he did this. Was he lying or was there some other reason? Well, here is the best reason I have found. Jesus already in the book of John has had occasions, and let me give you an illustration of this, you'll remember this. When he was in Cana of Galilee, do you remember when he was at a wedding feast and his mother Mary and Jesus and the apostles were there? And do you remember what Mary said to him when she discovered that the wine was running out? She said, the wine's running out, son. By implication, do your work here. Rescue this situation. And he says, my hour has not yet come. He said that, didn't he? But then if you read just a few verses later, what do we discover? We discover he's ordering the steward or stewards to fill up six containers that contain about 20 to 30 gallons of water each and he turns the water into wine. It's the same kind of situation. This is what I believe was happening here and there. And we're going to see it in the 11th chapter of John 2 when Jesus delays going to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
He was listening to the Father. He was always attentive to the Father. When the Father spoke to him, then he acted, but not before. Remember, he came to do the will of the Father. And the Father spoke to him, obviously, in John 2, about changing water into wine and rescuing the wedding as a result. And here, I believe the Father said to him, My son... You go, but do it differently. Go privately. Go secretly. There has been suggestions even, and there's basis for this in a way. In the fourth chapter of John, do you remember where Jesus found himself and his apostles in the fourth chapter? The Bible says he had to go through a certain region. Do you remember which region that was? It was Samaria. It was the shortest route, actually, from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem. And so Jesus could have really traveled privately, couldn't he, if he'd gone there? There wouldn't be people following him as they had been recently, and he could have gone that way. But he did it because the Father told him to do. Now, let's draw some application for our lives. Are we on mission? Well, sure we are. We're not to be interested in popularity. We're to avoid it like the plague. We're not to set ourselves up to be recognized either as individuals or as a church body. We're not to brag about ourselves. We are here to do the will of God. And whatever he tells us to do, we're to do it. God, Jesus crucified. And we need to understand that following Jesus is not altogether fun all the time. It's full of joy. I was just flipping through the channels. I think it was Friday. And I ended up on one of the Christian networks. And I caught this one little part of a message a man was giving. I don't know the man's name. And his point was, church is fun. And I thought, wow, I want to listen to this a little bit. And he was not talking like, when we gather as the body of Christ, the Spirit of God is present and we can enjoy Him. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud this morning at all. But the reality is that when we follow Jesus Christ, there are some hard times, aren't there? It's not always fun as the world describes that. So as a church, we're not to be after popularity we're to be after the will of God. And as individuals, that would apply too. Let's look at the method Jesus employed for his mission, according to this passage of Scripture. The first of which is self-denial. Jesus denied himself. I would imagine in his humanity, there was some tug as he was being tempted, because the Bible says in Hebrews 2.18 that he suffered when he was tempted. Amazing. It caused him to suffer because there was some degree of decision-making which he underwent. In chapter 4, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So, Jesus was tugged in the direction. He was bothered by the temptation. And I think there would have been a temptation. These brothers didn't know they were being tools of temptation, but I believe they were. And there would have been this tug, maybe, to go and do what they were begging him to do. 
But he did not do it. This was Jesus, wasn't it? This is Jesus. And this is the person who is filled with Christ. Jesus says later in the book of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Amen. That's where fruit bearing comes. He was speaking of himself, actually, but he was speaking of us, too, as his followers. And self-denial is the means of humility. In the book of Philippians, the Bible says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Remember, Jesus was God in his pre-incarnate state. Jesus remained God in his fleshly state. And Jesus continues to be God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a human being. And he took on the form of a slave. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. Jesus died to himself, didn't he? He denied himself in order that he could fulfill his mission. There is no completion of the Christian enterprise, the Christian mission, without humility. And that includes following in Jesus' footsteps by denying ourselves. And humility is maintained by self-denial too. Do you ever want to kind of raise up and be the king or queen of your world? Does that ever happen? Uh, yeah, it happens to me all too frequently. At home is the place it's more likely to happen. At work, it happens there too. All of a sudden, I just feel something rising up within me, and I want to be the boss. Well, the way we maintain humility is to remember who the boss is, always. Jesus is the boss. He's our Lord, is the word that the New Testament uses. Jesus chose lowliness, not showiness, when he carried his ministry out. That should be our heart, too, as individuals and as a church. Self-denial is the order of the day. Here's another thing about the method of Jesus that surfaces in this text. Self-discipline. The word does not appear here, but I have to believe that it took Jesus' self-discipline to wait for the right time for him to go public in Jerusalem. Would you agree with that? That was the ultimate aim of his mission. But he had to restrain himself. Perhaps you have read studies like I've read about that are done by child psychologists where they'll get a bunch of preschoolers in a room and they'll tell them, we're going to put this candy on the table. And what I want you to do, this is the instruction which is given to these children, don't touch the candy until I come back. And then they go to these one-way mirrors and they watch what happens. And the kids just, they're in torment, wanting to eat the candy. And they have discovered, as they have followed up decades later, when these preschoolers have become legally adult, they've discovered the ones who at that young age are able to deny themselves and they wait for the right time 
Those children are the ones who are self-controlled in adulthood, too. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Have you ever had trouble waiting? I have it every day. I have trouble waiting. But self-discipline is seen in Jesus, and self-discipline is required to wait. Our God is not in a hurry. When you look at the characters in Scripture, let's take Abraham, for instance. How long did Sarah and he have to wait before they received the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to them? Twenty-five years. Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, how long did he have to wait as a prisoner slash slave before he was elevated to a place of dignity within the Egyptian empire. He had to wait 13 years. And then there were probably another seven years, at least maybe longer, before the fulfillment of the promise which God had given to him about his brothers all came true. He had to wait. Moses, 80 years God worked in his life before he was elevated to the position that he fulfilled so beautifully when he was the human instrument for the deliverance of Israel out of bondage. And Jesus himself, 30 years before he went and started doing his ministry. F.B. Meyer has said, God's delays are not God's denials. Some of you are being delayed by God, it feels like. Please understand that usually these delays are means of preparing us for something better. Something that God wants to do in us in order that He might do something through us that brings glory to Him. So self-discipline was required for Jesus to wait. And it's true for you and me too. We have to wait. The Bible says, They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like the eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Praise God for the... Bible's commanding us over and over and then encouraging us with the outcome. If we wait on the Lord, don't jump jump the gun. There's an example of King Saul, which probably was the defining event in his life that led to his being dethroned. Do you remember the story? He was going to wait on the prophet Samuel to arrive in order to give a sacrifice to the Lord. But the people got antsy and so... He didn't wait, and so he offers the sacrifice, and no sooner has he done that than who shows up? Samuel. And then his response was, well, my fear of the people led me to do that. There's no basis for jumping the gun on the Lord. It takes self-discipline to wait on the Lord. This is part of Jesus' method. Here's another aspect of the method of self-discipline. Self-discipline is required to limit oneself. Did Jesus limit himself? Not just with regard to waiting, but in other ways, did Jesus limit himself? Yes, he did. Let me give you some examples, and before I do that, let me say this. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Narrow is the way. And remember, he is the way. Jesus was rather narrow, to say the least. He limited himself geographically. Have you ever thought about that? 
aside from the time when his parents whisked him away to Egypt when Herod the Great was having all the infant boys in Nazareth, two years of age and younger, put to death, the angel of the Lord told Joseph, take your family. And after the heat was off, they went back. But otherwise, Jesus lived in a region that was about the size of Connecticut. He didn't go to Athens. He didn't go to Alexandria. He stayed in Israel in that small plot of ground because he knew that's where the Father wanted him to be. And he was obedient to the Lord. It would make sense to us, probably, and it might have made sense to Jesus' humanity to take his show on the road to let more people know. But Jesus was not about that. He also limited himself ideologically. He didn't have a lot of different things to say beyond, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we live in a day when there is widespread belief that there are many ways to the Lord, many ways to God, many ways to heaven. But there's only one way Jesus is, and his is a narrow way. He didn't back off that to make people feel better at all. He refused to let people who were sin sick feel that they were good people. When a man came to him and called him good teacher, do you remember what he said in response? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. That's what Jesus said. And there's so much emphasis today on the goodness of man that it's hard many times for people who don't have the background that we have in the Scriptures and we don't have the influence of God in our lives to believe that there's anything wrong with them. Well, we're all sinners, right? Without exception. Jesus limited himself. And we will too. We'll narrow our focus. We'll be like the Apostle Paul who said, but one thing I do, one thing, not these thousand things I dabble in, but one thing I do. I remember what Count Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravian Brethren, this strong group of believers who influenced John Wesley to salvation after John Wesley had already been serving as a missionary in what we now know as Georgia. And when Wesley witnessed the way in which these Moravian brethren conducted themselves in a hurricane, and they were not afraid, and he was afraid to die because he didn't believe he had assurance of salvation, he came to Christ, and this is what Zinzendorf, their leader, said. He said, I have one passion, it is Christ, and Christ alone. We should hope for that in our lives, that Jesus would be our passion. And here's one last thing about self-discipline. Self-discipline is required to build a team. Let's go back to verse 1 again. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. I'm going to go over a little ground that I've already covered, but I want to emphasize it because it is important to understanding what I just mentioned, that self-discipline is necessary, required to build a team. If you'll go back to chapter 6 for just a moment and look at verse 4. 
Chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then there were just two days that followed that, as far as we can tell, that are recorded in the rest of the sixth chapter. And then we get to the seventh chapter, and it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. The Passover would occur sometime in March, April, that time frame, and the Feast of Booths six months later, September, October time frame, and that's approximately six months. So what do you suppose Jesus was doing in the six-month period? Do we have any information? There's none in the Gospel of John, but there is information in Matthew and Mark. And what we discover is he's taking his disciples with him. Wherever he goes, he's taking these apostles with him, and he's letting them see how to do the gospel work that he is equipping them for. He's showing them, then he's actually giving them responsibility to carry out the work. He's doing that. And he's teaching them. Interspersed with all the miracles he's doing in Matthew 16 that are recorded through like 18 and 19. He's teaching, he's, he's doing, he's teaching, he's letting them see what he's doing, he's employing them in doing it, and he's teaching. He's building a team. The thing that is most important in the ministry of Jesus is his building into the twelve minus one whom he was going to leave behind to carry on the gospel work. If you'll go to chapter 17 for a moment, verse 4. John 17, 4. Jesus says this, I glorified you on the earth, talking to the Father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus hadn't finished his work, though, had he? He was going to finish it the next day, as it related to our salvation, he was going to become the atonement, the payment for our sin. So, what is he having to say here? If you look at the broader context, look at verse 6, for instance. He says, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. He had taught them the Word of God. He had taught them and they were learning to keep the Word of God. So Jesus' main mission up until His crucifixion, His primary mission was not feeding the 5,000 or the 4,000. It was not casting out demons. That was part of the mission in an important part, but it was not the main part. His main part was equipping these apostles slash disciples to do the work. And it takes discipline, self-discipline to do that. When there are so many people who are hurting, and Jesus' heart is a heart of incredible compassion, I'm sure there was the tug on his heart to go and invest in those people immediately and deliver them from demons and illnesses and all that. But he knew he's pouring into these people whom we know as the apostles, and they in turn would be people who carry on the work that Jesus had taught them to do, empowering them to do it. Jesus Christ did not and does not commission His church to attract large crowds, but to make disciples. Do you know that? The measure of any church's success isn't 
the size of its membership, but the depth of its discipleship. Are people growing spiritually? That's the measure of any successful body of believers. One last word about success, and that would be this. There are two things that the Lord wants from my life and yours as His followers, as His disciples, that would indicate success. They're easy to remember. One is faithfulness, and the other is fruitfulness. And let's begin with the first one, faithfulness. You may remember in the description of the Day of Judgment, where all of humanity is divided into two groups, the sheep and the goats. Sheep would be followers of Christ. And what commendation does Jesus give to sheep, those who are followers of His? Well done, good and faithful servant. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, a faithful man who can find. In Solomon's day, faithfulness was in short supply. In every era, as a rule, faithful people are not abounding. God would want you and me, each of us, to be a faithful man and a faithful woman. Faithful to Him, to the Lord. And consequently, faithful in caring for other people. In the book of Psalms 37, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Faithfulness is something that is worthy of our cultivating, and it's something which takes time. It comes back to this whole idea of our being self-disciplined, and that allows us to wait, and we can wait. We don't have to be on the move all the time. We can wait on the Lord. And meanwhile, do good as we trust in Him. Faithfulness. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the woman who just is a widow and she keeps bugging this unjust judge and finally to shut her up he gives her what she asks and then Jesus at the end he makes an odd statement it's obvious that he's talking about that we ought to always pray and not give up that's the way he introduces that passage in Luke 18 but here's what he says it's a curious statement he says when the son of man speaking of himself comes will he find faith on the earth how will Jesus know that you and I are faithful when He comes? We'll be looking for Him, yes. But beyond that, how will He know? I'm praying. I'm interceding for people. I'm not just praying for myself. I'm interceding for people. And so faithfulness is evident in the way in which we pray and keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And then fruitfulness this is what Jesus says in John 15. He says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We're to abide in Christ. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he or she bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We abide in Christ. He bears the fruit through us and he gets the glory that is why God loves for us to be fruitful, because He gets the glory. We're so grateful that He does, for sure. So, in summary, what does God want us to be? 
He wants us to be like Christ, individually and as a church. And if we are, we'll have the same mission that Jesus had. Our mission will be to make disciples of all nations. Our mission, as far as motives are concerned, will not be for personal glory, not be for popularity. It will be to do the will of Him who sent us, in dependence upon Christ. And then the method, self-denial and self-discipline. There are other things which could be said about the method, but those two cover a lot of ground in our lives. The Bible says that a man without self-control or self-discipline is like a city whose walls have been broken down and overrun by the enemy. May God grant us as individuals and as a church to be a church that is trusting in the Lord and consequently being faithful and fruitful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to gather here to worship you. Thank you for these who have come. We pray that you'd make our church a church that is like Christ and that we will give our full affection and allegiance to him. And we know when that happens, you will use us in a very big way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.